0: Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver
1: Commercial
0: Real Estate Podcast. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host... Corey right?
2: And I'm your host, at least for the time being, Matt Scalina. And I'm sitting in. Yep. I'm Adam Scalina. Yep. You're three for three yeah, now I'm on three the sit- for three on the
3: sitting in. I don't know why, I, why <laughs> does this chair even exist up well, here? Well, I, I, I
1: can tell you because our listeners can't see, but you're sitting there with a clipboard and a pen, yeah. making sure that we're fully doing our jobs to the fullest I, ability.
3: I'm like the ISO 9001 here. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm taking inventory. I'm making sure the quality is up to speed here. <laughs>
1: I have an iPhone 2 to my name, so that goes to tell you how much technology I know about. You know, for a guy who's on his phone all the time, do you have a pretty old phone? Surprisingly old phone. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Here's my problem. Yeah. Is I've got two iTunes accounts going. Right. And I don't know what is what, and I don't know what contacts are linked to which ones. Right. So I can't let the phone die because I want to know how to retrieve everything. So it's not a burner phone. It's just a phone because no. <laughs> you don't know yeah.
3: how to transfer data. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's more or less that's what it you is. You know the guys
3: at Apple, like at the Apple stores, will do that for you, it's, right? It's
1: it's kind of an embarrassing thing to go <laughs> up
3: there
2: and when they ask me
1: for my password for both accounts yeah. and I don't know, and they ask me what email address it's linked to and I'm like I don't know.
3: So
2: it could you're, be it could be my. definitely not alone. It
1: could be like my Hotmail address from high school, like you know. Right,
3: like, Hotmail so at Hotmail. <laughs> 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 yeah. like, or, or or those <laughs> those good
1: ones like. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So that's why the phone just keeps going.
2: Right. It's at the point
1: now that I think I have to to stay up all night and actually hold the charger in the phone to get the charge. (laughs) I just just can't let it die on me.
2: Right. So who do we have on the show today, Corey? (laughs) (laughs) On today's
1: show, we have Shane Richter from Next Environmental. And it's one of the parts of the due diligence process in commercial real estate that not a lot of people know about. It's not the cheapest avenue you have to go, but it potentially could be a lifesaver in the event. And Shane kind of breaks that down for us of what you have to go through and God forbid what could happen if you kind of don't go through that process.
3: I wasn't at the interview, but this, from the little I know about commercial real estate, this is what terrifies me the most
1: because... Costs can really balloon if you get stuck with some of the environmental stuff. Well, this is why you want to do the testing in your due diligence. This is why a lot of banks force you to do it as part of your term sheets and commitment letters, is the bank doesn't want to go underwater on the property. And they've probably seen really bad situations where a property might be worth X and the contamination cost could be Y. That property could be almost worthless. And Shane kind of talks a little bit about that. Well,
2: yeah, there's some horror stories that Shane goes into here where people that have owned properties for 25 years end up uh, Spoiler alert, Matt. Yeah. Save it. Save it for the All episode. right. We'll leave it there. We'll <laughs> leave it there. But before we get to our talk with Shane, you know, one of the things that this brought up to me, because I was listening to all the due diligence and how scary it can get and the, how cost balloon, and Adam and I are residential real estate agents and subject-free is just a matter of daily life for us, right? Yeah. Right now it's subject free almost on
3: everything. And and sometimes like that, like this isn't anything new for our market.
2: No. And even in, in slower times, people will go subject free or at tight, you know, if you see a subject, period of seven to 10 days. It's like, hey, why such a long subject period? Tighten that up to two, three days. <laughs> so, so, you know, hey, we, you we're got not. 45 uh, minutes. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to put <laughs> subjects that are over a weekend. That's ridiculous, right? So we operate in that market. And it got me thinking because the level that Shane is talking about here in terms of his role as a, essentially a consultant yep. during the due diligence process, like let's talk about subjects. How often is subject free a thing in commercial real estate, and how long are subject periods? What does this look like? Because it's very different than the world we... Well, after after people
1: hear uh, our interview with Shane, you'll understand why in commercial you don't go subject-free. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's very rare. And when we talk about subject periods and stuff like that, like getting a residential, you kind of go get your pre-approval done. The banks kind of said, hey, you can spend X. You get your strata documents or you go through your due diligence period. And then five, seven, 10 days later, you're high-fiving. You're moving in. The kids are running around the yard. In commercial, you're probably looking at, you know, to do it properly, no less than 30 to 45 days for subjects. And then in the event that you have to say you're doing environmental work or your environmental tests on the property and it needs further testing, you might have subject periods that could reach 60, 90, 120 days. Wow. And you know, if you're buying an office building where you might have 30 or 40 tenants, you mean during your inspections, you mean you're having you know elevator professionals, you're having structural engineers look at the building. So it's not kind of a sort of like as cookie cutter, for lack of better words, every single transaction, every building, every property, every street has different soil conditions. Buildings have different issues with them, all of that stuff. So doing it properly, 30 to 45 days is probably what you're going to do. And, you know, part of that is part of the lending process. And then if you're buying some larger stuff, 60, 90, maybe getting up to that 120 day mark may not be completely unrealistic depending on the size of the asset that just makes me think and again i haven't
3: listened to the interview yet but the costs that you must have to spend for the due diligence as a buyer of commercial real estate they can probably get pretty high i would imagine
1: yeah and if you're going to go buy like say a shopping center that you might be buying a 20 or 30,000 square foot shopping center that might sit on you know 70 to 100,000 square feet of land i mean you've got everything from mechanical work and that stuff you have to look at like from the hvac system to the environmental you I mean you have to look at the roofs versus maybe someone who's buying a house It needs a new roof, it's kind of a that's one stop you have to go to. But in commercial, there might be varying factors that contribute to the work that needs done on the roof. And then you got environmental stuff and then you got lenders. So it is a much longer process. It does cost a lot more, but I think on the flip side, where you're seeing your costs kind of go up, your values are going up dramatically. You're not gonna go incur these type of costs to go buy a five hundred thousand dollar square foot office space. Sure. But you will take on these costs if you're buying a three to seven to $15 million building. And they could be the best cost you'll ever spend because if you get into it and you rip apart, and you get down the layers and you realize really quickly this might not be what we thought. Right. Right. I mean that ten thousand or twenty thousand you might be spending, that's the cost of doing business. But right. that could be the best investment you ever made by pivoting on the property.
2: Absolutely. And, and so just so I understand, on the bigger stuff, the costs are pretty clear, right? And the diligence is it seems entirely reasonable. On the kind of mom and pop stuff, people that are looking to, you know, get into the strata market, yeah. are the subject periods. Extended as they are on those larger ticket items? Well, right now, like 30 days, even on those smaller things. And that's
1: just part of the lending. Process, you know, because commercial deals get underwritten completely different in commercial deals. The underwriting could either be based on say the individual's business, if they're buying it from an owner occupier standpoint in combination with the asset they're buying, or it could, if the tenanted property, they have to underwrite the existing tenant and the lease and the lease term and all that stuff. So there's a little bit more process that goes into it. And then when you have appraisals, appraisals might take, you mean two weeks, sometimes three weeks just in commercial because they have to evaluate them on so many different levels Versus if this house sold for this and this house sold for this, we can make an estimate this one's worth this. So, I mean, 30 days done properly is gonna be probably your shorter time frame. Now, I'm not saying you can't do it for less than that, and maybe if you're buying cash. You don't require an appraisal and you don't need banking, but you still want to do your environmentals. You may be able to shrink that down to two to three weeks, but anything sort of less than that,
2: there's probably some, some skeletons there that may come out in a later date. And just as a final question here. So if you're in a multiple offer situation, there's three, four, five offers. Yeah. Everybody's coming in with three weeks, like presumably there's occasionally a cowboy that will, will go subject free, but you know, three weeks on the subjects is pretty much, you can assume most of the people writing offers are all on
1: that. Well, one thing too, even when you're listing your property, the quality of the brokerage or the broker that you have. On the listing side, it's going to help steer away from the Yellowstone guy that shows up that wants to write the <laughs> offer. Because sometimes in situations where there is multiple offers, and, and it's not uncommon right now to see multiple offers on you know 15 or sometimes even $20 million assets, the quality of the purchaser, the quality of the purchaser's agent can go a long way. Because sometimes you almost get worrisome if you have maybe a, an agent that doesn't practice commercial all the time, and they come in with an offer dramatically more than everybody else, You're almost scared to take that because they're not probably really evaluating the asset properly. And you know, if you kind of go down that road, there's a high probability that that offer may not come to fruition or they may not be able to get financing because of it. You've lost your momentum and the other three or four buyers, you know, 60 days later, they've all gone and bought something else. So it's not so much kind of like, well, if we take the first offer and it doesn't work, we'll go back to the other six agents and show the condo on Sunday it's like you might be tied up for 60 or 90 days. Right. So that's why, you know, the quality of the buyer and the agents involved go a long, long way.
3: It's funny. That's like the bringing a residential agent to a commercial property is just shooting yourself in the foot. eh? I mean, it's like going, it's like taking a knife to a gunfight.
1: Vancouver is a a very, very small town. So I I think if you're not going to say anything good about it, just don't say. So I'm going to have to plead the fifth on that (laughs) question. (laughs) And it's not, and it's not that people don't know. It's like we've been in this business for about a decade now and every deal is different and yeah. you learn something new all the time. And looking back 10 years later on maybe deals that I was trying to do 10 years earlier, I scratched my head and I'm thinking, what was I thinking?
2: Yeah.
1: And that's one thing too. And it's not the fault of a residential agent. They just don't have the same knowledge as say someone or, who's been in the business yeah, long.
2: The experience, well, right? Experience. No different me
1: selling a house. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to highlight the features. I'm going to get asked questions about it that I'm not going to know. So we tend to stick handle in our rink and we stay there for a reason. And and we'd highly recommend too, that even from an agent standpoint, having a commercial agent, if you do have a listing or you do get offered a listing or you have a buyer about something that maybe it's a little bit outside of your scope of work, just send it to the right person. Because what can happen is, I mean, God forbid you sell something wrong that's $10 million or $15 million. Last I checked, the Arizona emissions budget doesn't go up that high. I mean, there could be some problematic things there. So I mean, yeah. making sure you have the right people involved, they're going to save a lot of headaches and a lot of tears down the road.
3: I remember I was walking in Yaletown a few years ago with a developer who had built a building that we were basically standing in front of. And he was leading with the design people and the architects and everything else. And he kind of said... Let's just say I learned a lot on that one. In other words, you yeah. <laughs> know, they screwed it up, right? Yeah. So it's like everybody, it's like the experience, he, just it, it and you takes years to get, n- to, no get to where you get There's no textbook that's right? going
1: to teach you, especially in commercial, because you have so many different asset classes and every retail transaction is going to be different. You mean the needs of a tenant on a retail transaction for lease that's going to put in a t-shirt shop are far different than a cactus club. Right. And there's no textbook you can get that's going to teach you this. It's just it's years of knowledge and and making
2: sure you work with the right people. Right. Google's not your friend in that situation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem
1: is the cost of real estate is just so high in the city that you got to make sure you do it right the first time. Because if you don't, there's a lot of risk involved in it, regardless to what the price point is. You just want to make sure that you're not the one on the other end getting that phone call when you say, you told me I could put a 20-story tower here and I just found out I can build a duplex. Yeah. That's not a fun phone call. (laughs)
2: So so before we get to our talk with Shane Richter, more due diligence in that conversation and and really fantastic information. And like I said, and the horror stories, the horror stories go a long way. This podcast is sponsored this week, Corey. This podcast is sponsored by Impact Commercial Group with over 50 years of lending
1: experience for all your commercial lending needs. Visit Impact Commercial at impactcommercial.ca.
3: Well, I'm super excited for this one, guys. I still haven't heard it. So let's uh, cut to our interview, Shane Richter. Enjoy, enjoy, guys.
2: OK, so we're here with Shane Richter from Next Environmental. He's the business development manager. How you doing, Shane?
0: Doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time today, Shane. Just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah. So, in terms of kind of like my background and how I, I got into this field, it's a bit of a wild ride. But um, I bounced around from a few different industries, but primarily I, my education was uh, based in environmental sciences and had an interest in real estate from an early age. And you know, an opportunity presented itself at uh, Next Environmental that um, it was a really good fit for me, and um, found my way into this industry, which you know I've really found my stride and have uh, learned a ton over the past half a decade in the biz. And you know, met a lot of very interesting people, and somehow it's led me to be on a podcast with you guys. Oh, <laughs> this
2: indeed. is the culmination of yeah, of, yeah. of all your hard work, right? Grab here. that bucket list, so. cross it off.
1: <laughs> well, what? Thanks so much, Shane, for joining us. And one reason why we wanted to have you on this is a lot of people when they enter the commercial real estate world as an investor, or maybe they even buy their own buildings that have an end user. A lot of people don't understand what an environmental test is or what the reports are for. And we find we have to educate a lot of people. And when we sort of tell them the potential sort of negatives or the impact it could have on their purchasing power or their purchasing ability. With it, they kind of stand there kind of dumbfounded. So I think, I mean, you will be able to explain it better than I have. But why do lenders require environmental reports as usually part of their due diligence as part of financing?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it is it is a common thing that we obviously hear in, in our industry as well. A lot of people are pretty um, sticker shocked, certainly, by some of the hoops they have to jump through uh, in order to uh, facilitate some of their financing or even from a due diligence standpoint, you know, understanding their financial liabilities and doing the, the due diligence necessary to make some of their business goals come true. There, there's a lot of things that probably surprise a lot of people and environmental is definitely one of them. But, you know, stepping back a bit, environmental, the word environmental, it's a very broad and loose term, and there are a lot of different environmental sectors that are associated to real estate. But the one that's most commonly seen, certainly from like a pre-acquisition or pre-development standpoint, would be specifically related to contaminated sites. And the ones that the banks are typically most concerned about are contaminated sites because ultimately the liabilities associated to this can skyrocket pretty quickly. I mean, there are some pretty, pretty big invoices at the end of the day when it comes to remediating a site, and these are things that banks will look at, and they don't want to take risk on like that. So they, they look to professionals like Next Environmental among you know our, a lot of our competitors for their expertise, their guidance, their advice, and their opinions on what the likelihood of contamination on site being. And uh, it kind of spirals from there, uh, depending on you know what our opinion actually is.
2: And so, Shane, just walking through kind of, I guess from a purchaser's standpoint, like what exactly, if you're interested in a commercial property and you get it under contract and you're doing your due diligence and somebody calls Next Environmental, what, what does that actually look like? What do you guys do?
0: Yeah, so the rules and the regulations that have evolved over the past 25-ish years. They've evolved very quickly and very rigorously. And, you know, it, it went from being a couple pages of rules and regulations to over 10,000 pages of double-sided, single space micro-fine print, and it's just escalating from there. And the initial conversation that we usually have with clients is, and as well as the initial requirements that banks typically will, will request are what's called a phase one environmental site assessment. Now, this is a federally kind of mandated thing that spans across all of Canada, but BC and their infinite wisdom, we've also uh, introduced the BC Ministry of Environment's uh, rules and regulation, and they've got their own set of regulations that we need to follow. That's a um, surprise. yeah we're special but hey (laughs) so so there's there's a couple different approaches and every single time the first question we always ask is what are the business goals you know what are you trying to achieve is it uh, a simple refinancing play with a lender or are you looking to acquire the site for future development because this really drives what the regulations and the technical methodology will you know have to transpire throughout the course of an environmental investigation so when somebody calls we ask questions we say what are you trying to do? What, you know, what's the end goal here? You know, Where do you see this property being in five years? Because ultimately these are questions that a lender will want to ask as well and want to have answers to. It's about interpreting the business goals of the client right up front and then we can advise accordingly beyond there.
2: So if I understand correctly though, if you're buying a piece of commercial real estate in order to get financing regardless of goals, you do need an environmental test, is that correct?
0: Not necessarily, no. It really comes down to the particular lender's risk threshold. So let's use a, you know, financing a commercial strata unit, or let's say a light industrial strata unit. A lender might look at this as a low-risk operation because the building was built, you know, in 2017. Everything within the complex is relatively low risk. And they might waive the need for an environmental because the loan of value is quite small and the risk isn't there. But if you're talking about financing a purchase of a small sawmill that's been operating for 50 years, well, chances are, you know, there might be some issues that we uncover as part of a, a thorough you know deep dive. So it really comes down to what kind of asset class, what kind of property type, what are the business goals, and what are the bank's risk tolerance for that particular loan.
1: Is there a certain type of industry or businesses that might be more typical to contaminate the soil that would be more riskier when you're looking at buying a building, knowing that that type of business currently is in the property?
0: This is a really important question, actually, when it comes to, you know, due diligence is so paramount, especially from an environmental standpoint, because the way the rules and the regulations have evolved they're obviously becoming more stringent over time, but the business operations that operate on site are now triggering all sorts of requirements from an environmental standpoint. So Corey, you're likely aware, you know, and, and many of you probably are aware that gas stations and auto mechanics and, you know, dry cleaners, things like that, they're indicative of being not necessarily as a clean of an operation as let's say a, a simple warehouse where you store dry goods. So the business operation does dictate heavily how an environmental investigation will unfold. And it also dictates how your business goals need to address certain investigations. I'll give you an example. So let's say, for example, you have a former gas station. Now it's been decommissioned and a buyer's coming in and they're trying to redevelop the site. Well, instead of getting a phase one, phase two environmental site investigation done, you need to now comply with the BC Ministry of Environment's rules and regulations and get a stage one and stage two environmental investigation done in order for a municipality to even release a permit. And that's just step one, essentially, because let's say contamination is identified. Well, then you got to figure out how bad the contamination is You got to get a certificate of compliance and you have to do all this sort of in tandem with applying to the municipality for whatever kind of development related permit you need. And this is now mandatory. It's it's as recent as February 1 this year where you have to look at these types of business operations through a real magnifying glass and make sure that either one has never operated on site or doesn't currently. And if it has, then you really need to address that right up front before you make any financial decisions.
1: You, you mentioned there a stage one and a phase one. What What is the difference between the two?
0: Most people don't know, and really they are very similar, but a phase one is typically used to facilitate financing, and you can kind of use some alliteration there, phase one financing funding, uh, whereas a stage one is a requirement from a development standpoint to obtain permitting from any municipality in B.C., uh, whenever there's a Schedule 2 use on site. And Schedule 2 is what is, it's the term referred to as a list of high-risk operations. So these businesses that you were just talking about, Corey, where you know, you've know got your gas stations, dry cleaners, um, sawmills, these types of things, they're listed as Schedule 2 operations. And if that has ever operated on site, you've got to get a compliant investigation done, and that's a stage one, stage two, not phase one, phase two. So important distinction but for everyday kind of common business practice most lenders just look at that and they assume they're the same thing but uh, there are some regulatory triggers that uh, do require the more compliant version which is the stage
2: you know just thinking about kind of the changing landscape here in the world of contamination and regulation is it in your mind is it no matter what type of property even if the lender does not require an environmental test is it still a good idea to get an environmental test? And I'm thinking like, you know, I'm buying, you know, a storefront in a larger complex, say, along the Nanaimo, where, okay, I know, I'm pretty sure there was never a gas station there, but I don't know the entire history. Is it still a good idea to get an environmental test? Or if it's not required, is it smooth sailing and just move along? Well,
0: I would say my answer to that is based on What I've seen from sort of the behind the scenes, I would, as an investor or, you know, potential future developer, always get an environmental done, regardless of whether there's a financial element required, because too many times have I seen cash buyers come in and, you know, just go inside unseen, seems like a good deal, let's go for it. And then later on, find out there was an underground heating oil storage tank that leaked everywhere and it migrated onto other people's property who are now looking to develop and recourse is being sought after. So again, it comes down to the business case. If it is a fairly obvious street corner surrounded by untouched, fresh urban forest kind of thing. And you know, there's just no chance of there being any environmental implications. You're probably okay. But if you think that there is some history there or even around there, I would always get an environmental done just so you're in the clear. It's like getting an appraisal and an inspection done before you buy a house. You want to know you know, what you're getting yourself into and you want to read those minutes. You don't want any surprises down the road and environmental is just one box you want to tick when it comes to commercial and industrial.
2: Kind of two follow-ups, Shane, on that. What are the, the most common... So gas stations, it sounds like, but underground oil storage tanks, which are common in residential as well. Like, What are the most common you know, the usual suspects in terms of contamination um, that you see in the Lower Mainland?
0: So the usual suspects, and this might surprise you and many of the listeners, but I would say dry cleaning solvents are probably one of the more... I wouldn't um, even have thought of that. Yeah, and, you know, prior to getting into this line of work, I, I would never have assumed that dry cleaning was as nasty as it is. They use solvents historically, and nowadays it's not—you know—nearly as bad. If not, you know, most of it's biodegradable these days, or at least better for the environment. But back in the day, these solvents were really, really nasty. And if they were introduced to the environment, you know, mom and pop shop didn't want to get rid of it properly, so they dumped it in the back alley down the drain. Well, this stuff is heavier than groundwater, and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and uh, it can contaminate whole city blocks. And uh, it's, it's a real problematic solvent that doesn't actually dissipate very much over time. It kind of perpetuates even. So that's one that we see a lot. Certainly hydrocarbon or gasoline, oil spills, these types of things. We also see these underground storage tanks, certainly a lot on residential properties where they degrade over time and they end up leaking. And depending on the geology of that particular property, they can spread for. By the way, we've seen pretty nasty ones over my tenure, anyways.
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that I'm going to be washing
2: and hand drying all my clothes from now on yeah. after I, this conversation. <laughs> I was just thinking about the dry cleaning I didn't pick up this morning. Yeah. <laughs> now I feel guilty <laughs> about the whole thing,
0: though. <laughs> Shane, you uh, mentioned it. I don't want to sewer the dry cleaners out there because they're making an honest living and they are adhering to a lot more environmentally friendly rules and regulations these days. So. Straight away to quickly.
1: And is that kind of what you find? Obviously, uh, that type of business, maybe in the 80s and 90s, wasn't as much regulated as it is now in like the 2000s or the you know, heading into the 2020 era where there's new rules, regulations, and probably a much more advancement in the type of chemicals that they use. If there's a newer dry cleaner on site that actually you know, dry cleans on that property that went in 2019, I'm guessing probably wouldn't be as much of a red flag as if someone's been there, say, since 1980.
0: 100%. Yes, just a bit of a history lesson here. Back in 1997, contaminated sites regulation was introduced. And prior to that, it was sort of the wild, wild west when it came to environmental remediation and, you know, the rules that you had to comply with. But once that was introduced, and obviously over the course of its evolution until now, things have just become more and more stringent. But prior to that, you're talking, you know, 70s, 80s, even back to the 30s, 40s, the chemicals that were used back then were just whatever you can get your hands on and dispose of it at will, wherever you can you know, make it disappear. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we see a lot of surprised faces from a lot of people who had no idea that any of this type of stuff existed, and a lot of frustrated people, of course, and for good reason. I mean, as an uneducated commercial buyer, these are certainly things that will come as a shock and can really factor in when it comes to making dollars make sense from an investment standpoint.
1: And Shane, you touched on there earlier too, about how say some type of contaminants can actually contaminate like a whole city block. What happens in a situation? If I have a commercial property or, or a house for that matter, and right next door is my neighbor, Matt, and he operates a dry cleaner from 1970 and Matt's contaminants have now got into my property next door. What type of recourse or what happens to me as the landowner next door now that I'm affected because of somebody a neighbouring property has now contaminated me?
0: Yeah, no, it, this is something that is uh, all too common. And ultimately, the way the rules and regulations are laid out is that the polluter in the end pays. However, an affected parcel, what's what we call a flow-through site, they have a contaminated site on their hands. And if they have to, for whatever reason, maybe their goal is to redevelop their property, they're more than likely going to have to put the bill up front to clean it up. And then through, you know, legal action recourse, they can go after the polluter. And uh, hopefully they're still around or they have the finances to help recoup the cost of the remediation. But I mean, this is a rabbit hole that we could probably do a whole separate topic on because there are so many different Caveats and scenarios that play out when it comes to offsite migration and contamination of other people's property, but in a nutshell, the polluter pays.
2: Right. Yeah. But one risk that comes to mind here is if you're buying a site without the environmental test, and there's say an oil storage tank underneath, and you're you now own the the polluter site, right? That's one of the inherent risks in this process.
0: Certainly, and this comes back to the importance for doing due diligence because what you're effectively buying when you buy a property without doing an environmental is you're buying any liabilities associated with the property, just like you would be with, you know, buying an apartment with a leaky roof. So it's really important to understand these potential liabilities upfront because, you know, if you go in, guns blazing, buy a place and find out that there was an oil tank that spilled all over the place, Well, it suddenly becomes your problem, but it is shared beyond, you know, previous owners as well, if it wasn't disclosed, right? and you guys as realtors would know probably even more about this than I would, in that disclosure is very important at the time of sale, and there are things that can come back to bite you if you don't disclose that kind of information, but if it's all disclosed and you decide to proceed anyways, you own that liability moving forward.
2: And so... It sounds like, of course, the history of the property is, without an environmental test, understanding the history of the property, what was there, but also what was in the surrounding area, because that impacts the property. In my mind, an environmental test is of paramount importance. Can we talk a little bit about those costs? A, for just getting an environmental test as part of the due diligence. uh, And I'm thinking of, you know, what, somebody looking to get into the commercial real estate space can, can assume is just one of those due diligence costs. And then talk a little bit more about kind of a problems found, but also from like, this is a pretty easy fix to a medium fix to like, this is a disaster site.
1: And Shane, before you start, I'm just going to quickly run and grab my popcorn because I've been waiting for this question all day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, should we uh, quickly? No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, let's put ourselves in the seat of the client here. When you call me and you say, hey, I'm looking to purchase property A, and the bank needs a phase one environmental report. Well, this is very commonplace. We do dozens and dozens and dozens of these a month, and this is always, more often than not anyways, the starting off point for environmental site assessment. we'll look at what your business goals are and we'll go in with you know that perspective my role here at next is really to be able to communicate what the business goals are to our technical team so they really know what they're looking for rather than going in looking for (laughs) everything they can uncover Mm -hmm. and and we'll go from there so what a phase one actually is it's the professional opinion on the likelihood of contamination so we're not drilling we're not digging we're not taking samples we're going in with a pretty open mind on the place. We're conducting interviews of any tenants or, you know, landlords that might have a bit of history on site. That might be able to educate us on what the history of the actual property is, or even the area. Uh, we'll do a site visit. We'll take some photos. We'll look for any sort of, you know, drains leading to nowhere or fill caps for underground storage tanks. And uh, we'll, we'll bring all this site information back to the office. We'll conduct some historical research, we'll look at things like aerial photographs of what the actual land use has been over the course of however long, uh, you know, property has been developed. Uh, We'll look at city directories, fire insurance maps, and we'll amalgamate all this data into a pretty comprehensive report, and then issue it and we'll, we'll educate our client on what our opinion is on the likelihood of contamination. And, you know, it usually ensues uh, a conversation where we say, here's what we think, here's our opinion, whether we, you know, want to do further work on the site or not in terms of drilling and testing, because we think there's a high probability that it's contaminated or you don't have anything to worry about here. Go ahead and move forward with your deal.
2: And the cost, because that sounds fairly comprehensive, even if you're not digging, the cost for that type of consulting, basically?
0: Yeah, you're talking a couple thousand bucks, anywhere between two to three thousand. I wouldn't ever pay more than three thousand. If you are out there getting quotes, that would be on the high end. Yeah, one one of the important things, and certainly when you're pricing out these types of investigations, is to make sure your consultants on the financing or lenders approved list, because there's a list that every lender out there has that uh, you know it's a pretty coveted list. It's hard to get on, but they trust these consultants, and therefore that's why they're on there. And, you know, there, there's certainly some lowball quotes to be found out there, but, you know, you, you might go and do this investigation and the bank says, sorry, we don't accept this person's report, so go and get another one. I mm-hmm. can't tell you how many times we've had people come back and say, hey, I just had this done, but my bank won't accept it, so we've got to do it with you. So. But, yeah, anywhere between two to 3000 bucks is kind of what you can expect.
1: So now I've got my report back from you and your professional opinion. We need to do further site investigations. What is the next step and what type of costs would I potentially be looking at that? Keeping in mind, I'm just in my due diligence phase here as a buyer. This is the cost of doing business and commercial. So so my next step is, Shane, what's after I got my report in my hand? You tell me I need to do further site investigation. You've explained it in this novel you've written me. What is my (laughs) next step and what money tree am I shaking? Am I shaking the big one for Christmas type stuff or am I going to go plant a little tiny one?
0: I guess it depends on the size of your tree, but... Yeah,
1: they're not that big. not very big, <laughs> trust me.
0: Home <laughs> um, Depot weekend specials. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I I mean, a general rule of thumb, I kind of just tell people at a high level, it's about 10 times the price for the phase two, which is considered the next step uh, as a phase one. General kind of cost range is anywhere between Fifteen to thirty thousand, depending on the complexity of the site, how deep the groundwater is, how many boreholes we need to drill, how many samples we need to take, uh, how many days on site will we need to be there. So yeah, they fluctuate. I mean, we've seen them escalate beyond fifty, hundred grand just for much larger, more complex properties. But general rule of thumb for a, a small program is so about fifteen, twenty-five.
1: You, you guys can't see Matt's face right now, but I when you when you, when you drop that ten times number, I would walk over to the seat and pick up his jaw off the floor. Well, I'm just I'm just
2: thinking. So okay, this makes a lot of sense, right? If you're a large developer developing the land, I'm just thinking like mom and pop. I want to get into light industrial. Say, I would presumably still want to get an environmental test. A couple grand, three grand seems like okay. That's definitely for peace of mind. That's well worth it. I guess in a case, say light industrial, where you come back and say, hey, phase two is required. It's potentially 10 times the amount. I'm guessing a lot of people would walk away at that stage. Well, I think
1: one thing too to preface is these are typically like fee simple buildings that you're getting this done, not so much strata lots. So if you're buying a simple industrial building in Vancouver, you could be spending millions and millions of dollars. And unfortunately what the prices are today. So it is money well spent part of the process. If you are buying something uh, like a strata lot for 500000 to a million, yeah. chances are you're going to probably negate this process or the developer has something they can probably provide you. But it is money well spent. Shane, we'll let you pick it up from there.
0: Well, yeah, Corey raises a good point. When it comes to strata, I mean, you're dealing with property that is just a a sliver of common property so liability is ultimately shared across the board right so it's pretty rare that we come across an instance where even if there is you know a a mechanic next door and, and it's not looking like a nice savory operation we we can typically defer any further work because if you know if this person's just purchasing this property to own and operate as is and there's no future development plans going on on this common property, well, any sort of liabilities associated with contamination, they're shared. So they're divvied up between, say, the 20 people that own property on that site. So the bank looks at that and goes, okay, well, our exposure here is much more limited. Whereas if you are buying a freestanding building, you're the sole owner, then suddenly the bank looks at that and goes, oh. So that's really where that comes down to, but yeah.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. That that all that that's super useful. Um, you know, you mentioned Shane right off, and I just have I have two more questions. Uh, one is um, that BC is presumably more rigorous than than a lot of the rest of Canada. That's at least my understanding of the situation. Are there areas that are the regulation is is more intense in the Lower Mainland, or is Metro Vancouver kind of the same across the board, or is it easier or harder to buy property and jump through the hoops in Vancouver as as opposed to New West, you know, that type of thing?
0: This is teeing me up for one one topic that I really wanted to actually mention was um, there was a major regulatory update in February this year that I previously mentioned, but what it did effectively was it it blanketed the entire province to have to adhere to the same rules and regulations in terms of, you know, what it, what it takes to be able to develop or at least adhere to the environmental regulations. You know, once upon a time, prior to that, you could go to Coquitlam or some of the other smaller municipalities in the interior, even, you know, some semi-locally, and they, they were exempt from what's called the site profile process where they wouldn't have to necessarily declare what formerly or currently operated on site. So they could essentially push through a lot more permits and things without having to get these compliant investigations done. But as recently as this year, no municipality is exempt from from this this process. And it's actually been changed to what's called the site disclosure statement process. And it just, again, is, is another way for ministry to capture more Potentially contaminated sites, and make sure nothing's slipping through the cracks. It's great for us. It's not great for everyone else who's trying to just, you know, get things through through the finish line. But uh, certainly keeping us busy.
1: Now, I'm going to ask this next question very, very cautiously because we have offices throughout the province. Is oh. there any <laughs> cities or municipalities that may have a history? Of more contaminated sites, maybe you know, just based on what's the, the type of business has right. been in that area yeah, for resource, so many years. Resource, but uh, again, I I can list where our offices are first before you answer. Yeah, if you Vancouver,
0: want. Victoria, <laughs> New West, <laughs> Kelowna, on on deck. <laughs> no, honestly, that is a it is a good question, and there are certainly um, some municipalities that have a longer history. Let's call it. Places like New West, anything that's along the shoreline where a lot of like, you know, historical shipping activities and manufacturing, processing, uh, you know, longstanding industrial usages are are much more indicative of contamination. One of our biggest projects that we've ever completed was D.C.'s largest shipyard, which is now where uh, Harborside Business Park and the whole um, Lonsdale, Lower Lonsdale Key is there. Beautiful place to visit now, but you know, 20 yeah. years ago, that place was uh, an environmental nightmare. So, yeah, it's really shoreline, long industrial historical usages throughout the lower mainland and, and even you know places like the interior. Victoria actually is, has, a, has a pretty seeded history as well. We do see a lot of problematic sites out there, but I mean, it's it's well worth it in these types of investments and uh, kind of market conditions we see so much activity in these particular locations because it's well worth it.
1: Well, I think one good thing is I can't afford to buy any property along the water anywhere, so
0: (laughs) so that's probably a good thing.
2: (laughs) There you go. Maybe, Shane, is a final question, you know, I'm always interested in horror stories. Uh, I guess a, a huge chunk of your professional life involves dealing with horror stories. Do you got a good one that you pull out at dinner parties? to scare everyone.
1: And let's just call it uh, located at 123 A Street yeah, yeah. in uh, in some unknown city.
2: Yeah, you don't have to you don't have to name the site.
0: Yeah, no, I we had a pretty unfortunate incident where, you know, a, a client came to us who had purchased a property about, you know, 25 years prior. They bought it cash, site unseen really, and they they were Unaware of any sort of environmental requirements to begin with. And, you know, I I don't blame anyone necessarily because back then it was sort of this budding time of rules and regulations coming into effect. But this particular owner went to go and sell their site. And uh, unfortunately, the dry cleaning contamination that had previously been introduced to the environment from the actual owner prior. Although it was disclosed in the buy-sell agreement, they they waived that as being a an issue, and the contamination had spread about a block, full city block and a half, and all the neighboring properties. And now, you know, they go to sell this site, and the liabilities associated to the the cleanup and and the recourse that a lot of the neighbors are needing to seek is just too immense for them to make this a financially feasible sale. So. They're they're stuck with a property that is essentially not worth any money anymore. And then there's some liabilities on top of that. So just gets back to the importance of doing your due diligence up front and really understanding what you're getting yourself into before crossing that threshold.
1: Matt has the same face right now as he did when we we're talking about the pricing just, of the just, face too.
2: Yeah. What a honestly, what a tragedy though, for like it's unbelievable. Well,
1: one thing too, like during the process, I know some people, especially when they're first time buyers into commercial, they sometimes they raise their eyebrow at some of the costs that you have to incur during due diligence. But this is ultimately kind of like an insurance policy to some degree, where if you spend the money when you're, you know, to get the proper due diligence done on a property that you're probably potentially spending millions of dollars on, could be the best money spent because in the event it comes back that there is challenges with it or contamination issues or even liability issues around that. You walking away from that property and spending a few thousand dollars to figure that out could be a lifesaver versus pursuing it and unfortunately
2: having a story like Shane just shared. The definition of penny smart, pound foolish, uh, I would say uh, there, Shane. We do have our last section and I'll let Corey introduce this because we have, it's, we have, a, it's a sponsored section.
1: We have our MLG six pack. It's six rapid fire questions, Shane, there to let everyone know a little bit more about you outside of work. Do you have a little bit of time to hang out with us for a little bit longer?
0: I got all the time for you guys.
1: And our MLG six-pack is brought to you by McInnes Law Group for all your legal commercial needs from commercial closings to commercial leases. Reach out to McInnes Law Group at mlglaw.ca. All right, Shane, you ready? Hit me. All right, we'll give you an easy one to start off. Favorite movie or TV show?
0: Ooh, brings me back to my childhood and I think my brother could probably attest to this being our favorite movie together, uh, The Goonies. The Goonies. Oh, Lost. I just
2: watched that. I have a nine-year-old. I it
0: was, yeah, <laughs> always that. had a crush on Marianne. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a book one book you'd recommend to anyone listening?
0: Oh, uh, you know what? I actually just finished an amazing book, and you know, it's not a real uh, brain stimulator, but it's called uh, Beauties by uh, James Duffy. um the TSN uh, panel. It's uh, A lot oh, of sports. funny hockey stories in there from, uh, from a couple of legends. So, yeah, that was a good read.
1: Good. An inspiring quote that you live by.
0: Oh. Um, take a page out of Bill Nye's book and say, uh, I want to leave the, the earth better than I found it.
2: You know what? That's one thing I was thinking of asking you off to start um, because, you know, you're, you're protecting... Purchasers through a process, but in a lot of respects, you came out of environmental science. So presumably, there's a component to, especially your, the cleanup you guys do, that is, uh, you know, you're doing God's work, Shane.
0: <laughs> hey, I'll take that. Um, no, I mean, I, I came into this industry with uh, illusions of, you know, saving the world, and and although it we're like you say, doing God's work and cleaning one site up at a time here, it is much more business centric than you know what i had imagined and i like playing both roles i guess in this instance and doing my part while making dreams country
2: right on favorite band or song
0: oh man i don't know how many people are going to get on board with this but i have a uh, real addiction to dropkick murphy's that uh that's, kind of, that's an
2: interesting one
0: yeah boston celtic punk
2: got me uh, Got me
1: <laughs> I was wondering why Matt Ward kilt to this recording today but I guess now it all makes sense you guys talked a lot <laughs> yeah that
2: that's, that's a good one that's a good one a surprising one but a good one favorite vacation spot
0: we've got a little place up in the Okanagan just off uh, Westside Road there that I've been going to since I was a wee lad and uh, yeah that's that's my spot I, I've been a lot of places but nothing beats Blue Gros Mountain.
2: All right, Shane. And the last question for you, one piece of advice you would give anybody looking to enter into the commercial real estate market?
0: Uh, Don't overlook the implications of environmental liabilities. Sounds like, you know, bugs, bunnies and everything nice, but uh, it can be pretty nasty if you don't uh, do the appropriate amount of due diligence. So Feel free to give me a call and I would be more than happy to talk you through every step as needed.
1: Well, speaking of that, Shane, how can our listeners get a hold of you?
0: Yeah, so Abby on LinkedIn, Shane Richter, give me a call on my personal cell, 778 954 7979, or you can visit our website at nextenvironmental.com. Uh, we've got a uh, friendly staff waiting to take your call as needed.
1: And then with that cell number, that's not for vacation bookings at your cottage. That's just for environmental reporting.
0: Well, depending on the project you're bringing, you're more than welcome. <laughs>
2: well,
1: I'm, I'm texting <laughs> you right now. <laughs> Thank,
2: thanks thanks, again, Shane, for your time. That was super useful information. Uh, great conversation. So thanks again.
0: Hey, appreciate you guys having me on and uh, looking forward to tuning in to many more of these.
2: Great.
1: Thanks so much for your time, Shane. All right. Cheers, guys. Take care. And there you have it folks our interview with Shane Richter next environmental and, and the one thing that jumps out to me I'm thinking right now is green beer. Yeah. <laughs> green
3: beer. Green beer. What was yeah what was green beer about? Drop No the Dropkick drop, drop
1: Murphy's. Dropkick Murphy's. Oh. St. Patty's Day. Like oh, everyone, oh, everyone oh, Yeah. I didn't <laughs> even put that together. Is that everyone, the band? Everyone. St. Patty's Day you got Dropkick Murphy's you got green beer going on you know you got the kilt running around like Matt's got on right now. Like it's just,
3: I, when I hear dropkick Murphys, I just think of the departed.
2: Jack Nicholson with the accent, man, the departed was maybe that's, I gotta, I feel like I want to watch that tonight. You know what? When I think of the departed, I think of a phenomenal movie with right at the end with that rat, no spoilers alert, the literal rat as like a metaphor kind of, this is where I think, really? Yeah. I feel like that was like Scorsese, man. You're usually got the deaf touch. This is and where that I think was our, just beating
1: the beating you over the head. This is where I think the intelligence levels comes out. You guys are talking about some deep movies and I'm thinking about the Balarne stone. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I actually uh, I, I don't remember that rat, but I that's interesting. You know what I was thinking though the other day is there's that new movie with the guy the Better Call Saul guy that just yeah, came out? Uh, Who is that guy again? Yeah. He's uh, He's amazing. He is amazing. What's yeah, what's his um, name? Somebody, Corey, do you you know who we're talking about? Best in...
1: uh... Again, intelligent levels coming out. You guys are talking (laughs) about this movie?
3: Well, hang on a second. We need to get his name because it's... uh, Honestly, that movie, it was secret that brought it up, brought it to the table. But it's the guy from John Wick. I think it's the guy who, who wrote John Wick or directed John
2: Wick. I can't remember.
3: But if you search John Wick... Bob Odenkirk.
2: Yeah, Bob Okay, So he wrote for SNL. He's whatever that show with David Cross. Uh, he's done it all, man. Yeah. And now he's an action star. And like now in he's in his mid 50s, which is incredible.
3: Well, little story. We haven't talked about this on the show yet, but do you know that the guy who wrote the screenplay for uh, Yellowstone was an actor in the show, uh, that motorcycle show, Sons of Anarchy? Sons of Anarchy. So, yeah,
2: never watched that show. No, well, I didn't I watch it either. I can imagine that there's some, simil- some parallels. Well, well, Sons of Anarchy some has, revenge has, a, fantasy. has a
1: very dear spot in my heart, but not for a good reason. No. Is me and my wife, we actually went and we'd like buy season after season after season when we kind of got stuck with the show. And then we realized it was on Netflix after <laughs> for eight bucks. <laughs> so I love so, so probably two hundred dollars deep into Telus. Yeah, it's on Netflix. So, so hang on a second
3: here, because the craziest thing about you is you don't like you didn't have Amazon
1: Prime. I, I did. I did not. Well, I do now. Thanks to my, you guys. But do
3: you buy a lot of stuff on
2: Amazon? Uh, well, I do now. You do. <laughs> <You> do. <laughs> I feel like any subscription out there, I have it. <laughs> yeah. And you're even worse.
3: I mean, yeah. I'm even worse, but I uh, couldn't live without Amazon prime. I mean, it's incredible. You can. Well, I had
1: to get that $80 covered. So for our Vancouver office, they're now our office suppliers. Amazon now, yeah. cause I had to get that $80 <laughs> back somehow. So now if you need pens and pencils in our office, <laughs> Jeff Bezos drops them off.
2: <laughs> so what else do we have guys? Before we cut for the day, while it's worth pointing out, all of Vancouver Commercial Real Estate podcasts transcriptions are over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where all things real estate related live. But Corey, where can people find out more about what you're doing over at William Wright? They can visit us at
1: WilliamWright.ca. They're also welcome to email me at Corey at WilliamWright.ca and anyone looking to buy, sell or even lease your commercial real estate, reach out to us, let us know. We'll be more than happy to put you in touch with a broker in any of our offices and like I said on our last show, we're very excited. We have a big project coming up for sale in Langford there, the West Shore Business Park, which is 33 Strata industrial units going for sale. And if they reach out to us ahead of time, because they listen to the show, we're getting VIP access. And
2: you know what? We'll have that on the Livewire as well. Sounds great. Where good. you can just click the link. Because we have a couple of pre-sales in the residential world on the Livewire, and we'll add that one. That, will that be, sounds great. That, that'll make it really easy. So VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, yeah. the Livewire, or uh, get in touch with Corey. Yeah. Sounds great, guys.
3: And, and and last but not least, where are your offices right now, just for people listening, if they are outside of Vancouver?
1: Yeah, so we have offices in uh, Vancouver, Langley, New Westminster, uh, Victoria, Kelowna, and we're also happy to say that next year, towards the end of the year, we'll have our, our sixth location in uh, downtown Kamloops.
3: Fantastic.
1: All right, thanks for joining us, guys. And if you like what you hear, please go on to uh, Apple, rate the show, share it with a friend. We appreciate everyone listening, and we'd like to carry it forward with the momentum.
2: Yeah, have a good week. Thanks, Take guys.
1: Take care.
0: Subscribe today.